this is your first time here, I'm Ben. I get to be one of the pastors. I'm so glad you're here. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have free Bibles in the lobby. Please grab one. Uh, otherwise, it'll be on the screen, so follow along with me. Let's go ahead and read uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 1. We'll go to, to verse 3, and then I'll pray. We'll dive into it. Paul says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea, for all who have not met me personally. I guess that would include us because we've never met Paul. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this good word that you've given us that enlightens our minds, it opens our eyes, it stirs our hearts, captures our imaginations with the beauty of Christ, that we can see you in all of your glory and you not be crushed, that we can enter into your presence as sons and as daughters loved and your family. As we read this today, as we dive deeper, Spirit, I ask that you would speak through me. I need your help. As always, feeling even more weak today, so please be strong in and through me and for everyone as we listen, including me, that we would submit to your lordship and your leading in our lives and that you would transform us for your glory. Amen. So there's this author who wrote a best-selling book called Into Thin Air. I'm going to try to say his name, but it's hard. I've been practicing all week, and it's still hard. John Krakauer, I think. <laughs> and he writes this story about this expedition that he was on with a bunch of other people climbing up Mount Everest. story took place in 1996 with a group of accomplished climbers, um, but it centered around a woman named Yasuko Namba. Forgive me if I'm butchering that. Yasuko loved to climb, and, and she was really good at climbing. In fact, before this expedition up Everest, she had already climbed seven of the tallest mountains in the, in the entire world. This was the last mountain that she had not climbed on her bucket list. And, uh, and so in 1996, at the ripe young age of 46, because 46 is the new 26, um, she only had one more mountain to accomplish, one more goal to accomplish, and that was getting to the top of Everest, conquering the tallest mountain in the world. If she could do it, if she could accomplish this feat, she would be the oldest woman to ever climb Mount Everest. And so she dedicated all of her time, all of her focus, all of her energy toward that one goal, reaching the pinnacle and standing on top of this mountain. You could say that she was single-minded in her desire to get to the top of Everest. In fact, Krakauer uh, put it this way. He was on the expedition with her. He said, it was almost as if she was in a trance. She pushed incredibly hard, jostling her way past everyone to the front of the line. She wanted to get to the top of Everest, and evidently she wanted to get there before everyone else on her team. Now, the great news about Yasuko was that she actually reached her goal. She got to the top of the tallest mountain in the world. She was the oldest woman who have, to have ever done it. And, and she achieved her dream, and it was incredible. She conquered Everest. 
But the bad news about this story was that Yasuko didn't uh, make it home to tell her story. She made it to the top, she accomplished her dream, but she had exerted so much energy trying to get there that almost as soon as she reached the top, almost as soon as she gained her prize, she succumbed to her exhaustion and froze to death in the middle of a blizzard. It's a tragic story. See, what she wanted more than anything was, again, to get to the top of the mountain, to stand on top of the world, to be cheered on by all of her friends and all of her family and all of her countrymen, to be remembered for the rest of her life and really for the rest of history as being the oldest woman to have ever climbed Mount Everest. But the problem was that she had the wrong goal. The problem was that she had the wrong goal. And after climbing seven of the tallest mountains in the world, she should have known it. Because what do successful climbers know? I'm not one, but <laughs> what does everyone know? What's common sense? Well, successful climbers know that the main goal isn't just to get to the top of the mountain. The goal is to get to the top and then ultimately <laughs> get back down too, to safety. And that's what Yusuko forgot. And so the tragedy is that she accomplished her goal against incredible odds in the face of incredible difficulty. But, unfortunately, she had the wrong goal. Now, I think a lot of churches make the same mistake as Yasuko. And this is what I want to talk about today. A lot of churches make the same mistake as Yasuko. We're not trying to climb the tallest mountain in the world. We are actually trying to do something much harder than that. We're trying to extend the kingdom of God into the world. We're trying to pick up the baton that Adam dropped and that Israel dropped and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with worship. <laughs> That's really hard. We're trying to be a kingdom of priests that clear out a pathway so that this lost and dying world can make their way back into the presence of God. That's what it means to be a priest. You, you make a way for people to get back into the presence of God. We're trying to open deaf ears. We're trying to enlighten dull minds. We're trying to quicken dead hearts. Guys, climbing Mount Everest is child's play in comparison to all that. This is the goal of the church. This is what we've been uh, left here to do. The problem, though, is that even while we're caught up in this incredible task, it can be easy to get distracted by and even be, I would say, driven by wrong goals. Maybe good goals, but not ultimate goals. There's a reason that people joke about Baptists. We're not Baptists. Um, but there's a reason that people joke about Baptists. We're loosely associated with them. That Baptists only care about three things. Bodies, um, buildings, and budgets. <laughs> the three Bs. Triple B Baptists. Four Bs. There's probably more in there. Come up with them and then I can add more to this alliteration. It'll be great. How big can we get our campus? How, how big can we get our crowd? How big can we get our checking account? Again, alliteration, because we're, we're kind of associated with Baptists and that's what we do. Um, these are the goals that in a lot of ways drive us as a church. The tragedy, though, is that when a church is driven by these goals, do you know what the result is almost every single time? 
almost every single time is moral, ethical, and spiritual death. You get to the top, you achieve what you wanted, what you thought was the most important thing in the world, and everyone's slapping you on the back and cheering you on, and you've got your platform, and you've got your books, and you've got your jets, and then it's death. Big buildings aren't bad, guys. We've got a great building. I'm very thankful for this building. Big bank accounts aren't bad. Big crowds aren't bad either. Just like reaching the top of Mount Everest is not a bad goal. But if there are top priorities, if they are the things that are driving us and motivating us, taking up all of our focus, then our fate has already been sealed. We won't survive. Now, the Apostle Paul knew this. The the Church of Colossae, if you missed the first week, the Church of Colossae is a lot like our church. This is who Paul's writing to. They're they're only a couple of years old. They're young. They're energetic. They're growing. And they're excited. And they're, they're doing a lot of things really well. They love Jesus. They want to follow Jesus. Um, but this church was in danger of getting off track. It was in danger of buying into some heresies, some syncretistic spirituality, and um, adopting some goals that went along with that. Uh, they were basically trying to do everything that they could to appeal to everyone. So you had like this Jewish religion over here. They were like, we'll take some of that. And then they had the Gnostics over here. They are like, we'll take some of that. Um, then they had the, the folk tradition that was like angels and demons and magic. They were like, we'll take some of that. And so if you went into the church at Colossae, you would get all of it. They were like an attractional church. If you came into the church at Colossae, you would feel loved. You would feel welcomed. And you would recognize your, your folk religion or whatever you grew up with. Everyone would feel welcome. So they would grow. They would thrive. They would do all of this, and their goal was that they would all just live happily ever after together. Now, Paul knew better. Paul understood what was going on. He knew that they were on their way to disaster. And so he wanted to help them sort of recalibrate their compass so that they could move in the right direction. Now, he does this by laying out goals for his church. I don't know if you have life goals or you have team goals. I know that squad goals was a thing on Instagram. This, this is just going to be called church goals, okay? These are Paul's goals for his church. Just I want you to imagine before we get into them. Um, I just imagine my old soccer coach in preseason camp standing in front of us as a team, and he's got his whiteboard behind him, and he's got his Sharpie, and he's like, all right, guys, here are the goals for our season. And it was like, win every home game. And we were like, okay, yeah, coach, all right. And it's like, get 10 clean sheets. We're like, okay, we can do it. Do the double over Keystone. Keystone was our rival. They were like a mile down our road. It was like, it was like Duke and Carolina, except bigger. Just shit. <laughs> Not at all. Um, so it was all of these goals. And we're like, okay, we're going to do it. And we, we knew what we wanted to do. It was mapped out for us. And then we went out and we did it. I feel like that's what chapter two starts out like. It's Paul. He's standing in front of the team. Not physically, but in this letter. And he's got his whiteboard out. And he's got his marker. And he's like, here it is, guys. This is what I'm laboring for. This is what I'm striving for. I want these goals for you. If you could do this 
then you'll be successful. If you could accomplish this, you'll not just survive, but you'll thrive as a church. This is what I imagine is going on here. And so I want to show you three of these goals today. Uh, Caleb's going to pick it up next week and go over some of, some of the other ones because we only have time for three. In fact, we really only have time for two and a half today because um, there's a lot here. So let's get into it. What are the goals for the church? And I'm just going to put life church in here because it's for us. Okay. Goal number one, that life church would be strong in heart. Look back at verse two. He says, my goal is that they would be encouraged in heart. And that word encouraged is an interesting word. It could also be translated comforted. It could be translated given endurance. Or I think the word that sums it up better than any other word is strengthened. That you would be strengthened in heart. Paul is longing for something more than just a remedy for discouragement. I think when, when, we, when I read the ESV and I see encouragement in heart, I just think they're discouraged. That There's way more going on here than Paul saying, hey, I don't want you to be discouraged. He's actually striving for them to be strong in everything. How do I know that? What does it mean to be strong in heart? What does it mean to be strengthened in heart? Is it like, you know, Braveheart, you know, like William Wallace, get your kilt, get your war paint and just go to battle. Is that what it means to be strong in heart or is it something different? Like what that means is really important for us if it's a goal for us. So what does it mean? Well, it's really fascinating. In the Hebrew world, first century, even in the Greek world, um, the heart was, was synonymous with the intellect. It was synonymous with the will. In fact, if you were to talk about the heart in the first century, basically what you were describing was the totality of someone's inner being. It was the control room. And whatever happened in the heart determined everything that you did in life. It's where you learned information. It's where you processed information. It's, most importantly, where you decided how to act on that information. Everything happened in the heart. This is first century. In a lot of ways, guys, I don't know if you're familiar with like modernism and, you know, Descartes, I think therefore I am. Modernism basically said we're brains on a stick. And so the most important thing about us is our minds. So first century heart is basically like 20th century modern's mind. Okay, so heart and mind are kind of the same thing if you just kind of put it into our context. So when Paul is saying, I want you to be strong in heart, really what he's saying is I want your inner being, your mind, the control room, whatever it is that directs and guides everything that you do, I want it to be strong. So important. The mind, the heart is what takes in reality. It's what defines reality. This is why we have this weird two-story view right now of the mind and the body. And my body might be male, but my mind says I'm female. And so that's what's the truest thing about me. This is what's going on right now. It defines reality for us. It's what determines how we respond to reality. So when Paul says that his goal for the church is to be strong in heart, he wants us to be strong in our minds. That means that we would grow in our knowledge. It means that we would grow in our understanding. It means that we would grow in our wisdom. In fact, if you just kind of look one page back, chapter 1, verse 9, that's what he prays for. That we would grow in knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. So that 
We'd be able to tell truth from lies. Wouldn't that be incredible in a post-truth society? (laughs) I mean, goodness, every single thing that there could be a debate over that's like really important stuff about our health and our safety and our well-being and just what it means to thrive as a country. How do you decipher what's true? Paul's praying that you would be strong in mind so that you'd be able to identify truth and reject lies. Paul's praying that we would instinctually, think about your instincts, that we would instinctually act and respond like Christ no matter what. Proverbs 4.23 says it like this, above all else, guard your heart. 2,000 years later, above all else, guard your mind. For from it, everything else flows. Everything you do flows out of what's inside of you. Whatever's in your heart, whatever's in your mind, whatever is in the control room of your inner being is going to drive every single decision you make, every single word that you speak, every single step that you take. So it's vital that it is strong. What would it be like to instinctively act like Jesus? In those moments of heat, when you're mad, what would it be like to act like Jesus in that moment? (laughs) In, In those moments of chaos, when you're scared, just respond like Jesus. It just happens. I'm almost done with this really fascinating book. It's called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, just incredible author. If, if you know me, you know I love this guy. Um, and, and he demonstrates this idea over and over again that what is going on inside of us actually flows out of us instinctively without us even thinking about it. Now, he talks about how it's called Blink because he's talking about the decisions we make in the blink of an eye, okay? So what he talks about in this book is the fact that Most of our decisions that we make and most of the actions we take are actually done in a split second and they're not actually made logically. We think we're really logical people. We think we're really rational people, but actually we're not. We just do whatever's inside of us in the moment every single time. There's so many different examples of this. Like think about it. You think of yourself as a really logical person until someone cuts you off. And then you become like Mad Max, okay? And you're like, I will have my revenge on that person. And you just respond without a thought. And then it, it goes away, it dies down. You're like, I'm so glad I, didn't, I just didn't get shot right there. Like, I'm so glad there wasn't a cop there. And then you start thinking logically. When your wife offends you, when your husband lets you down, when your kids annoy you, they never do. You will act and you will speak before you think. And that's a big problem most of the time. (laughs) That's why you have to apologize on a regular basis and confess and ask for forgiveness. Some of you husbands are looking at your wives right now and you're like, I'm really sorry for what I said on the way over here. When you hear the phone buzz, get this, when you hear your phone buzz or ding or whistle or whatever it is, You don't come up with a list of pros and cons and rationally come up with a plan of action. You just act. And most of you pick it up and look at it. Side note, by the way, about phones. I read this study this past week. 
It's not a good study. Uh, it's not, not encouraging. Um, it, it was a study about what happens to us when we hear our phones. And, um, and the study found that if we're in the middle of a task, if we're in the middle of something that's really important, we hear our phones, two things happen. First of all, immediately our focus wavers. And then secondly, immediately our work gets really sloppy. But get this. If we hear our phones buzz or tweet or whistle or whatever, and for some reason we can't pick them up, immediately our blood pressure spikes. We immediately feel anxious and our pulse quickens and our problem-solving skills decline. Guys, that's instinct. That's not logic. It's just how we respond in the moment. Right now, if you were to hear your phone, you'd be like, oh, God, what is it? I'm talking about a phone right now, and you're like picking it up because you're stressed out about maybe missing a notification. It happens automatically, guys. It happens involuntarily, and this is what I want you to see. While our actions and our responses are more often than not automatic and involuntary, whether we like to think it or not, the science actually shows this, our actions are a direct result of how we have conditioned our minds so most of our actions are automatic and involuntary and they just flow out of us. But what is in us has been trained by us, conditioned by us, and developed by us. And I want you to follow this because this is where it gets real. We act out of instinct. But instinct is a result of training. Think about fighter pilots for a minute. Fighter pilots have to react immediately to rapidly changing situations as they fly thousands of feet above the surface with enemy fire coming from all different directions and they're in like a $25 million just piece of war machinery, okay? And they're on the fly having to make all kinds of decisions and all of those decisions are made automatically. Again, they don't have a pros and cons list in the moment. They're just doing. But what's really fascinating about their instincts is that their instincts are a result of years and years and years of training. Years of studying. Years of practice. Years of regiment. So they've strengthened their minds by going through all of these different regiments. Paul is saying, this is my goal for you. And I'm saying with Paul, and I'm saying it to me too, this is my goal for us, that we would strengthen our minds, that we would condition our minds and train and develop our minds so that our instincts look like Christ's. Doesn't matter what you're hearing, doesn't matter what you're doing, doesn't matter what you're seeing or responding to, you're gonna look and act and talk just like Jesus. You see an image come up on a screen, whether you're alone or you're in public, and you immediately respond like Jesus if it's a sinful image. Someone cuts you off on the road and you don't lose it. I want you to be so strong in mind that it won't matter what threat is closing in on you. It doesn't matter what the temptation is that you're facing. It doesn't matter what the false teacher is saying in the church. You'll be able to recognize it. 
It doesn't matter what the persecution is that's coming from the world. You'll be able to face it automatically, involuntarily, instinctually. Now, this is the first goal that Paul is laying out for the church. And, and I would say it's the first goal because it's absolutely vital. I mean, this is the one from which all other goals flow. If you're strengthening your heart, if you're conditioning your mind and training your inner being, not only will you be able to accomplish the mission at hand, the mission that God has given us, but you'll be able to do it in the context of any kind of suffering, any kind of situation, any kind of opposition, just like Jesus did. So the question is, and the question that I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about is how in the world do we strengthen our minds? How is it that we become what Paul would say, strong in heart? Well, the answer is so obvious, and yet it's so obvious we often miss it. It's the word of God. It's God's word to us. Psalm 119.11, David says, I've hidden your word in my heart. I've hidden your word in, in the control room of my being so that I might not sin against you. So that instinctually, I'm just not going to sin against you. 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 15, Paul says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters, which are false teachers, will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from who you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So how do we prepare, prepare for suffering? How do we prepare for persecution? How do we respond with courage and boldness? By continuing in the scriptures. How is it that we can identify imposters? How is it that we can see what is deception and what is not deception and make sure that we're not being deceived in the process? It's training our mind with the scriptures. Verse 16 through 17, it tells us why. All scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you want to be strengthened in mind, if you want to be strong in heart, read the word, memorize the word, pray the word, sing the word, meditate on the word, listen to the word, and most importantly, obey the word. If you don't do those things, you will not be strong in heart. Train your mind with it. Condition your heart with it. You want to know why the church in America struggles so much today? You want to know why we run from suffering? You want to know why 33% of regular church attenders and 50% of nominal Christians will run away from their spouses? You want to know why we run from sharing our faith? You want to know why we run to all kinds of false teaching and all kinds of self-serving gospels? You want to know why we date just like the world? Which we're going to do a collective on dating because we got so many singles in here, it's coming Get excited. Because <laughs> y'all are trying to date right now. Oh, man, it's good. I want everyone to get married here. 
You want to know why you shop the same way as everyone else in, the, in our culture? Why you eat the same way, relax the same way, spend your time the same way, talk the same way, plan the same way, dream the same way? You know why your vision wall, if you're into that thing, looks exactly like every unbeliever's vision wall? The vision that you have for your life, your five-year plan, your 10-year plan, your 20-year plan looks no different from anyone else in the culture. You know why that is? It's because most of us haven't conditioned our minds with the word of God. In fact, the reality is that most of us haven't conditioned our minds at all. And I want you to hear this. We, we haven't done the work of developing our minds. We've let the advertisers do it for us. We've let the media giants do it for us. We've just been passive in it. For example, one marketing professor wrote that there are only two ways to increase customers. Either you switch them to your brand or you grow them from birth. Jean Payette, the Swiss psychologist, echoed this thought when he wrote, all of these people understand something that is very basic and logical, that if you own this child at an early age, you can own this child for years to come. And I just think about as a kid, like every single Saturday I'd watch cartoons, and this is back when you had commercials, and so the cartoon would be like 10 minutes, and they feel like the commercial's worth 20 minutes. And it was just like, buy this toy, eat this cereal, go to McDonald's. You know, it was just all of this stuff and, and I was being conditioned as a, as a kid to think something about what it meant to live the good life. I got to have it. I got to eat it. Got to do it. I read this story this past week that was absolutely crazy and very validating <laughs> in all of this. Um, it was a study of preschool kids. And what they did was they wanted to see how much advertising had impacted their inner, inner person preschoolers, okay? So what they did was they got food, identical food, and they wrapped one of the, um, one of the sides of the, I don't know how to describe this, they, they wrapped one of the foods in McDonald's wrapper, and then they just put the other one there without any wrapper. And no matter what the case was, no matter who the kid was, no matter what the food or drink was, you know what they chose every single time? McDonald's. Yeah, and we're talking about like apple juice and apple juice. <laughs> we're talking about carrots and carrots. It's not burger quality here because you can have a bad burger or a good burger from McDonald's. It was just like the canned stuff. And every single time they chose McDonald's. So one physician from the Yale School of Medicine wrote this, this study demonstrates simply and elegantly that advertising literally brainwashes young children into a baseless preference for certain food products. Children, it seems, literally do judge food by its cover, and they prefer the cover they know. Let me just give you a little bit more here. Todd Gitlin one of the leading thinkers on media and the impact of mass media on culture. He wrote this, the torrent of images, songs, stories, streaming in front of us has become our familiar world. This torrent determines what we see and what we don't, what we think about and what never enters our mind. 
The media we watch every day has been shaping us for years, whether we know it or not. For example, think of MTV. As MTV's founding chairman, Bob Pittman, stated in a 1982 interview, if you can get their emotions going, make them forget their logic, you've got them. At MTV, we don't shoot for the 14-year-olds. We own them. <laughs> Every time you turn on a TV, it is training your minds to think a certain way about reality. It's telling you what to think. It's creating the environment in which you will live. Every time we see an ad, it's telling us something about what it means to live the good life. Every time we get on social media, our minds are being taught something about how to live. And we see, oh, this person posted a selfie. And, and they like put a Bible verse under this. And this is going to get lots of likes. I'll do that too. Or this person went on this incredible vacation. And man, that looked incredible. I need to go on a vacation. I don't have any money. So my, my Instagram stinks. It's not just why kids love McDonald's food where they think that they love it. They think that it tastes better. Guys, it's us too. We were the kids that were being owned and dominated. We were the kids who were being conditioned and we were willing and we were passive and we had no idea it was even happening. And guys, it still happens to this day. This is actually, just think about it, okay? And, and follow me here. This is why we drive the cars we drive. This is why we wear the clothes that we wear. This is why we live in a certain neighborhood. This is why we associate with certain people. I honestly think this is why most guys play golf. <laughs> like, I don't actually know most guys who just genuinely love golf. Maybe you're one of those people. I used to love golf. Um, in fact, our first year anniversary, we went to Pinehurst, and I played number two because, like, that's what you did, you know? And, uh, and looking back on it, I haven't played golf in, like, two years. I'm like, what was I doing? I was just, like, wasting literally all of my money doing this thing. Um, I don't think most, most of the guys who play golf really enjoy it. And just follow me. Track with me. Some of you are really mad at me right now. Um, We've been conditioned to think that this is what successful men do, okay? Let's just, you can at least agree with that. There's a reason that Rolex runs ads for pro golf events and not pro bowling events, <laughs> okay? Like, there's a reason that Tag Heuer and BMW and Mercedes and Audi are running ads for the PGA and not for billiards. They're, this is what successful men do. So if you're a man... Well, at least appear successful, go out and play golf. And so we try it out. We go out there and we, it's supposed to be relaxing, it's supposed to be fun, it's supposed to be enjoyable. We're just hacking away at this little white thing, dozens of them because we lose them. And for four hours, like, what, what, what are we doing with our lives? Four hours? And if you've got to drive there, now you're talking about five hours? Like, literally, you just spent five hours in misery <laughs> trying to be Tiger Woods. Anyways, if you like golf, I apologize. I think we've been conditioned to think this is a normal activity or whatever. We spend hours and hours and hours and hours and all kinds of money doing it. And I can't remember who I was just talking to. Oh, yeah, my, oh, 
my brothers love golf. Um, and, and so I, I act interested and I ask him about it. And anyways, that's neither here nor there. Fred Fedler put it this way, and I'll move on. I thank you for tracking with me. I know this isn't easy to hear. He's the author of one of the most widely used college textbooks on mass media. He wrote it this way. The media may constitute the most powerful education system ever known to man. Do you want a strong mind? Guys, if you want a strong mind, the first step is to realize that it's already being trained. It's already being conditioned. The second step is to actually make sure it's being trained and conditioned by Christ. At some point, we've got to just put the remote down. At some point, we've got to turn the TV off. At some point, we've got to shut off the ads. At some point, we've got to just hide the phone and turn it on silent so we can't hear it so our blood pressure doesn't spike. At some point, we've got to get in the Word. Hide it in your heart. What would it look like for you to wake up in the morning and not pick up your phone, but pick up the food that satisfies the longings of your soul and feast on it? What would it look like at night to not binge on just worthless stuff and binge on the word of God? What would it look like to, instead of picking up the gossip magazine, to pick up a biography and see how the word of God transformed some man's life 200 years ago and how it got him through suffering and persecution and all kinds of hardship. And then you can be encouraged by that and then you can face the same thing. How are you conditioning your mind? From the heart of man flows everything else. So that's Paul's first goal for the church, that they would be strong in mind. That is my goal for us, that we would be a thinking people, a deep people, a people that get beneath the surface, that aren't so great at pop culture at the expense of what really matters. Secondly, goal number two, that life church would be united in love. Look back at verse two with me. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. Paul doesn't just want us to have strong minds. He wants us to be strong in our affections as well. In fact, that's what a Christian is. A Christian is strong in their minds, thinks deeply about God and the world, and loves like nobody else. Like if you see a Christian that's got three PhDs and just walks around like he's miserable, He's got a lot of work to do. In fact, I'd say throw away the PhDs because they just made him arrogant. If you see a Christian who's just like this bubbly, effervescent, like, goodness, everything is sunshine and daisies and butterflies all of the time. And, and <laughs> goodness, they're pumped and they don't know why. Then I would say, you know what? Maybe you should, maybe you should read a book. And most importantly, the book. Figure out why you're so happy. The Christian is both of these things. 
It's not a surface level flippant, I'm just happy because I'm happy. It's a deep rooted joy that flows out of a deep satisfying love of Christ. And it is a strong and a deep and a robust theology and understanding of the word of God so that if you cut us, we bleed scripture. No matter what the situation is, no matter how hard it is, no matter how much you just want to cry or weep or just be alone, what comes to your mind because of all of your conditioning is, man, it's truth. As a church, what if we could be both of those things? What if we could be the kind of people that were hungry for the word of God, who wanted to study it deeply and get beneath the surface, and at the same time, we were the most passionate and loving and joyful people in the entire world? Like, what if we could be that as a church? That's Paul's goal here. Be both. So he says, I want you to be united in love. Now, that word united could literally be translated knit together if you like to do the knitting. My friend in college did crochet. He was like this jacked dude. I mean, he was always in the gym. And for some reason, he just picked up crochet. And he made us all toboggans because we were in the frigid north. Um, (laughs) I thought of him when I read this, that we would be knit together, that we would be bound together, essentially that we would become one, one person. I don't know how many people are in this room right now. And there are a lot of people on vacation because the fourth is coming up and all that. And that's fine. We're way more spiritual than they are. Um, I don't know how many people are in this room. But essentially, there's only one person in this room because we've been bound together. If we've been bound together in love. I think this is really important for us to get here because... While what we think about truth and what we think about reality is absolutely vital, what is it that binds us together? It's actually love. If you have truth without love, what are you? Well, you're just like a, just a gong. You like those symbols? You're just crashing symbols, making a hideous, annoying, like just ugh, awful noise. But if you have love, oh man everything. Now, of course, we know that what Paul is talking about here is he's talking about what we love the most, because there are lots of different loves in this room, okay? So I love Manchester United, and Stu and Will love Manchester City, because, you know, goodness, you know, uh, James loves Arsenal, and, and Gavin loves Chelsea, and, and we, we love all of these things, even though we're rivals, you know? There's something that we love more than those things that enables us to actually worship as one that binds us together. Now, I would think that soccer is probably the most insignificant example that I could give. So let's let's go a little bit further because all of you are like, I don't even like soccer. What what did you just say? That was like French to you. You It's like, what is that? Okay, well, let's get a little harder. How can we be knit together with someone that our culture says should be our enemy? How could we be one, one person with someone that our culture tells us we should hate or even better, cancel? How could someone who voted for one person worship next to someone who voted for another person? Well, maybe we'd have to love something more than politics. 
That's a hard one. I heard a story last year, I'll, I'll share it, about a couple of people in our church. I won't name them because I know it would be embarrassing for them. Their story was so profound to me, though. I was so encouraged by this. One of them is uh, vocally on the right, and one of them is vocally on the left. And I'm not, I never look at Instagram. I'll post something on Instagram and then I'll take it off my phone because I wish you all would do it. It's a waste of time. Anyways, okay, <laughs> don't shoot me. Um, but I've heard that they're very vocal on Instagram, okay? As the story goes, uh, they're very vocal about their opinions and they're very passionate about their opinions on Instagram. Maybe that's another sermon, okay? Uh, maybe not the best platform for that, but you know, it's neither here nor there. The story ends well. Um, they disagree with each other, of course. Who would have thought? And, um, and they uh, were concerned about each other, too. Very concerned about each other. They were a little bit annoyed with each other. They had some back and forth to try to figure it out. Ultimately, they were trying to get each other to switch sides, you know, take the red pill, drink the blue Kool-Aid. Um, and it didn't work. It just didn't work. Neither of them were successful. Now, both of them were really tempted to write each other off. I mean, that's really easy to do. I'll just like show up to church and I'll pretend like that person's not here because, man, they might not even be safe because <laughs> they believe something different than I do about politics. Um, the good news, though, is that they didn't do that. They got together for dinner intentionally, basically because they, they believed that they were one. And so they were like, we, we got to at least like get dinner and talk, you know, and not talk about this stuff. And uh, just talk as friends. What I love about this story was that during the course of that meal, they realized that while they loved politics and they were passionate about politics, they both, and the politics divided them. They loved something that was more significant than politics, and that actually bound them together. They realized that they had a deep love for Christ, and which they were, they actually doubted that, okay? Like, believe me when I tell you they doubted that. But they realized in that meeting that they had a deep love for Christ, and they had a deep love for the lost around them. And they were passionate about bringing other people to Christ. And so they just started sharing stories of the harvest, they started sharing stories of how God was using them in the lives of, of friends and family, people who were close to them and far from God, and they realized, like, wow, like, we're in this together. That's actually what we're going after together. And as a result, their bond was deepened. They became what they already were. See, that's the goal of the church. Become what you already are. You're already redeemed. You're already blameless. You're already holy because of Christ. His righteousness is your righteousness. You are righteous. Now be righteous. Right? You see that? You are one. Ephesians 2. There is no more Jew or Gentile. There is no more slave or free, male or female. You could go on and on down that list. That's who you are. You are one new humanity. Now be it. Do it. That's what Christianity is all of the time. And, and so we've already been made one. 
Paul is saying, I want you to act like it. I want you to be united in love. This is what Paul is saying here, that a love for Christ would transcend even the most important secondary loves. Because politics is important, okay? And, and I think that the conversations that we have around those, those things are very important. And we need to be able to dialogue about them and we need to be able to talk about them in an honest and open and respectful way and in a way that values truth. Not what we've heard in the media, but that values truth. Those conversations have to happen, but they're secondary to what's most important, namely that Christ is king, that we already belong to his kingdom, and that there are billions of people in the world who are on their way to an eternity separated from that kingdom. That is primary. If we would love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we would love our neighbor as ourselves, guess what we would be? What we already are. This is what Paul's praying for here. Guys, <laughs> this is why a woman, if you think back to, to Jesus' followers, this is why a woman like Mary Magdalene could be in the same crew as the Virgin Mary, mother of Jesus. Prostitute, mother of the Son of God. One. <laughs> this is why Simon the Zealot, who was a nationalist, political assassin, killed Romans in the street with a hidden dagger, could be in the same crew with, with Matthew, the tax collector, the, the national traitor, the Roman puppet, and they could become one. <laughs> Crazy. Who could do that? A transcendent head could do that. This is why Jews could share communion with their once hated Gentile enemies. They found something in Christ that was so important, that was so beautiful, that was so tangible and valuable and central to who they were that all of the other important things and valuable things and central things were placed to the side. Guys, this is the opposite of what our culture is trying to get us to believe with, with CRT right now. And, and I did a, uh, a collective on CRT months and months and months ago. I thought it was like last month. It was October. Time's flying by. Um, if you want a, a lengthier discussion on our church's position on, on, on this, I'd love to, love to share it with you. Critical race theory wants to divide us, though, based on, on our transient identities. You're a woman. You're a man. You're white. You're not. You're healthy. You're not. You're straight. You're not. You're a victim. You're not. It, it breaks us apart based on our transient secondary identities. The gospel of Jesus Christ comes and binds us together based on a new primary identity as sons and daughters in the family of God. Our culture is doing everything it can to rip us apart. Christ has already done everything needed to bring us together. The gospel gives us a new love. It gives us a new loyalty. It gives us a new lens through which we can see the world and each other. It's so strong that we literally are one. Now Paul says, my prayer for you, I'm striving for you, I'm, I'm struggling for you so that you would be a people that think deeply, but also more importantly, you would be a people that love Christ deeply as well and that that would transform everything. Do you see this? 
Guys, this is my goal for our church. It's messy. It's so messy. Oh, it's, it would just be so much easier to be like, you know what? This is the side we're on. If you don't like it, get out. Be so easy because we'd all be the same. This is so messy in every way. And yet it's so beautiful when unity is achieved because it points to a Christ that's greater than our differences. My question for you is, what in the world could God do with a church that, that lived like that in this city? Isn't that, what, isn't that what we need? Finally, goal number three. Life church should be satisfied by Christ. And I'm going to, like I said, this is going to be half a point because I'm, I'm going long. Verse 2, look at it with me again. Go to verse 3. My goal is that you may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that you may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, Caleb's going to pick up next week, and I'll probably touch more on this as he does that. Um, but this is Paul's ultimate goal, that we would be strong in heart, united in love, but ultimately satisfied in Christ. He says, so that. I want you to be strong, and I want you to um, be encouraged, and I want you to be united so that. So that you could be satisfied in Christ. Guys, in Christ are all of the treasures of wisdom. In Christ are all of the full riches of complete understanding. So the question is, do you want to be rich? Of course you do. Do you, do you want to be wealthy? Paul says, get Christ. All of the riches are found in him. Do you want to find the greatest treasure can ever be found in the world? The kind of treasure that's worth selling all of your other treasures so you can possess that one thing? Get Christ. When I was reading this, my mind immediately went to Aladdin. Aladdin in the Cave of Wonders. Man, when I was a kid, I used to dream about finding one of those caves. Um, you, you remember he finds this cave, appears out of nowhere, and he's walking through, and there is treasure everywhere. It's just like gold from the ground to the ceiling, just mountains of gold, jewels and diamonds. There's even a magic carpet that can fly it's incredible. But the greatest treasure of all in this, this entire cave was a lamp. And if you could get that lamp, you could create a billion caves of wonder with a snap of a finger. And so Aladdin is trying to find the main treasure. And there's all of this treasure everywhere. And he's like, don't touch it, Abu. Don't be a dummy. I know you're a monkey, but don't be a dummy. And he's just like tunnel vision. I'm not looking. I'm not going to be tempted. I'm not going to be distracted. Oh, man, there's so much good stuff in here. But I'm going for the best thing. And then he sees the lamp at the top of this like really steep, dangerous walkway. Climbs up to get the lamp and he grabs it. And, of course, you know how the story goes. But when I think about Christ, when I think about what Paul is talking about in this passage, I imagine myself in this cave of wonders. That's what, that's what the world is, right? There's so much good stuff in this world to be enjoyed. So many good gifts. 
so many wonderful things that are just all around us. The problem, though, is that if we get distracted by those things, we miss the main treasure and our whole life is destroyed. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, I want you to just get your head down and I want you to go after the main thing because if you could get him, then you'll get everything else. If you could get him, then you'll learn how to enjoy all of the good gifts in their right place. You won't have to be a slave to food. You won't have to be a glutton to satisfy the emptiness that you feel. You won't have to worry about how your body looks in the sense that like you've got to achieve some standard of sexuality that will make you appealing to the opposite sex. God will actually show you if, if you get Christ and you're satisfied in him, you can treat the body with respect and with care, but you're not a slave to it anymore. He says, if you get Christ, if you're satisfied in Christ, guess what? You can make all the money in the world and you won't be a slave to it. It won't own you because you, you don't need it. You could lose it like that. You could be like Job and literally lose everything and you could be like God gave it and God took it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's freedom. That's freedom. If you get the lamp, you get everything else. But if you go for the other treasure, you end up with nothing. That's what Paul wants us to see. All of the riches that you could ever desire are found in Christ. And when I say that, guys, please, please hear me. I'm not talking about like you're going to become a billionaire. In fact, most of us won't. We're promised persecution. We, we just read that verse. We get all of the riches in Christ, which means we'll have true satisfaction and identity that can't be shaken by politics. Man, a happiness that won't be determined by circumstance, a peace that will transcend chaos, all of these different things Christ gives. What if we were a church that was satisfied by Christ? What if we were a church that wasn't enslaved to any kind of physical treasure? Wouldn't that free us to serve our world? We wouldn't need stuff from people, so we wouldn't have to use people. We could actually be a servant to all, just like Jesus was. We wouldn't view people as something to climb in order to get to where we need to be. But we'd get the towel out, we'd get the basin of water, and we'd stoop and we'd do the job that no one else does, and we would love them and we would love them into the kingdom of God. The only way we can do that is if we're free of them. Jesus wants to satisfy our souls. Paul wants us to go to Christ. Paul wants us to abide in him and rest in him and delight in him until he satisfies the longings of our souls. These are the first three goals that Paul has for our church. More to come. Let me just say that a church that's driven by these goals will be able to face any disagreement. A church that's driven by these goals, will be able to face any hardship. A church that's driven by these goals will be able to face any persecution, any imposter, any false teaching, and come out on the other side victorious. That's what I want for us. Do you want it too? You can say amen. All right, would you stand? I want you to take a minute to just bow your head where you are and talk to God. I want I want you to let the Spirit speak to you as his word has just been preached. If this is true, and it is, 
What does this require of you today? What needs to be changed? Is there an action that you need to take? Is there a sin that you need to confess? Is there an idol that you need to throw away? Is there a promise that you need to believe? What does this text require of you? Just bow your head, ask the Spirit to reveal it to you, pray, tell Him what you're going to do, and then I'll lead us to the table.